Hey Moonshot listeners, it's Chris here. Over the next few episodes, we're going to be taking a deep dive into the autonomous vehicle market. We'll be talking to the people who are at the forefront of the industry, including one of the team who worked on the very first autonomous vehicle back in the late 80s and early 90s. But before we get into that, we want to take you back to our episode from December 2017 on designing driverless cities, because city design is really important to the whole discussion around implementation of driverless systems, and it really sets up what we'll be talking about in the next few episodes. So let's get right into it. The reality is everyone everywhere stands to benefit from self-driving technology. More than that, when you consider the state of driving today, it's also clear that our roads need to be safer. It's sort of crazy. Worldwide, 1.25 million people die annually on our roadways. That's the CEO of Waymo, John Krafkick, talking at the Web Summit in Lisbon in November about the potential impact of autonomous vehicles on improving our roads. Waymo, if you're not familiar, is Alphabet's self-driving car company, Previously, this project was run by Google before the company was restructured, and Waymo and Google before it have been the world leaders at building autonomous vehicles. In the last eight years, Waymo's vehicles have driven more than five and a half million autonomous kilometers on public roads, and that's across more than 20 cities. It's about 140 times around the globe. In a large amount of the testing that Waymo has been doing, a driver has been behind the wheel, making sure that the car doesn't do anything wrong, and if it does, they take over. However, in the more recent future, Waymo has been removing humans from the equation entirely. Humans make errors and aren't perfect. They also have a habit of trusting the technology. Autonomous vehicles are run by artificial intelligence, which as we discussed back in episode 2, requires data, and a lot of it. These systems need to be trained, which is why it's so important that these vehicles clock up a lot of kilometers. Right now, we're driving about 16,000 kilometers every day on public roads and driving another 16 million kilometers each day in simulation. And this vast amount of experience has resulted in some very reliable cars. But the truth is, roads are complicated. Every country has different rules, different forms of transport, different cityscapes, and to build a mass-market autonomous vehicle requires adapting these systems to the rules for different countries. So, how far off is this future when cars can drive without anyone at the wheel? It's not happening in 2020. It's happening today. Welcome to Moonshot, the show exploring the world's biggest ideas and the people making them happen. I'm Christopher Lawson, and today on the show, we're exploring the world of self-driving cars to see what actually needs to happen for us to realize this dream of a driverless city. And just a disclaimer, one of the companies that we'll talk about in this episode is Uber, a company that my co-host Andrew Moon actually works for. So for that reason, he's going to sit this one out.
can't flip a switch and suddenly everyone's car is self-driving. There's going to be a period of time, decades worth of time, where uh, there's going to be this overlap period where there will be a small number of self-driving cars and still the majority of cars in the world will be manually operated. This is Andrew Hawkins. He's the transportation reporter for The Verge. The way into this autonomy, this full autonomy, is people um, buying their car, buying newer cars that have these semi-autonomous features, uh, and then sort of on a parallel track, using more uh, ride-hailing and ride-sharing services like Uber and Lyft, maybe realizing that they don't they don't need to own a car. Maybe they can rely on some of these services. Maybe rely on some of the car-sharing services um, like Car2Go and Zipcar. Um, and if these things sort of on a parallel track will eventually start to converge uh, and we'll start to see people using uh, these, transporta- these autonomous transportation services and, uh, and then things will really start to kick into gear. Andrew is someone who is on the forefront of reporting on autonomous vehicles. And as he just alluded to, there's a ton of companies playing in the self-driving space right now. And we will dive deeper into those companies in a later episode, I promise. But the focus for this episode is on building a driverless city. And one company that I did want to mention is Uber. Because when you think about the potential impact driverless cars will have on society, you can't help but think about a world where you don't need to own your own car. You just book a car and it turns up and takes you to your destination. And in that world, the car is seen almost like a form of public transport. And it's something which with Uber, you can kind of already access. Although one day, those Uber drivers, well, they won't exist. Your cars will be autonomous. Our interest is in building a global ride-sharing network. It's not necessarily to manufacture cars one way or the other, autonomous or, or otherwise. That's the current Uber CEO, Dara Khosrowshahi, talking at the New York Times DealBook conference in early November. At the same time, we want to make sure that we have um, availability to autonomy as it, uh, as it comes into the market uh, and as, and Right now, with the technology being as young, there are certain players who are interested in developing autonomy and operating a network, and there are certain players who just want to manufacture. Uh, So our investment in autonomy is one in that we think it's a really, really interesting space that is worth a ton of money, and there's a lot of capital going in. Now, Uber's heavy investment in autonomous vehicles won't result in real-world usage for a number of years yet. Building autonomous vehicles is hard, and it's very easy for things to go wrong, something which you don't want if you're running a network of autonomous vehicles. Because the issue with autonomy in any software is that um, you've got these edge cases. With autonomy, the edge cases kill you, right? So you've got to actually build out for all the edge cases, uh, which makes it a very, very difficult problem to solve. But that hasn't stopped Uber from thinking about how such a system could work. And like Andrew Hawkins mentioned earlier in the show... There's not going to be some switch where everything just switches to autonomous. There'll be some kind of transition period. And I've heard a number of people mention different figures as to how long that period will take. I've heard everything from 5 years to 20 years. But one thing's for sure, it will take time. You know, it's not going to go from 0 to 1. There's, there are going to be hybrid networks. I think particularly with, with Google... Uh, and slash Waymo, and also with other companies that have been uh, piloting uh, some some of the uh, the public experiments on, with self-driving cars. 
it, it's that they they've remained still sort of behind you know sort of a, a barbed wire fence uh, to use a metaphor uh, in terms of like accessibility so that you can count maybe on two hands the number of people who have uh, uh, who've actually ridden in these things and it's not until we get more people into them that you're going to actually start to see uh, the commercialization uh, start to sort of spring into action will uh, will you be buying one uh, see, that's the thing. I don't think that these things are going to, these self-driving cars are meant to be purchased by people. I think that this is supposed to signal the end of personal car ownership. These are meant to be uh, taken out and used in a, as a taxi service uh, in a sharing capacity. On top of that, they'll probably be too expensive to own. Uh, the equipment that's attached to them, while is getting cheaper and cheaper to produce uh, a lot of the sensors, the LiDAR sensors and the radars that, that are attached to these cars, it'll still be... Uh, a level of cost that most people will not be willing to uh, to bear for themselves. They want they want mass market cars. Those are the cars, you know, the sort of the uh, the the twenty to forty thousand dollar range in the U.S. are the cars that that most people buy. Um, and I don't think people will be buying autonomous vehicles uh, unless you're you know LeBron James or someone who can afford that type of vehicle. Do Do you think that will be a, a generational change? That it needs a new generation of people to really adopt that technology absolutely 100 percent. it's it's if you if you, i think if you look at a lot of surveys um involving millennials uh most of those uh people uh are less inclined to want to own their own car they want to live in cities they don't want to be tethered down to sort of the hassles and the obligations and the responsibilities that come with car ownership they want to use uber they want to use lyft to get around or public transportation you know there needs to be commensurate with the development of autonomous vehicles as a, as a service, as a transportation service, there also needs to be more investment in, in public transportation to make sure that uh, that people have options. If they don't have options, then people will continue to buy to purchase vehicles. Um, and if we want to move to a system where nobody owns their these vehicles, they're they're managed as fleets, uh, much like a city would manage a fleet of buses or a taxi service would manage a fleet of taxis then there needs to be commensurate uh, uh, infrastructure investments in, in public uh, public transportation. But that said, um, I, I do think that it is a generational shift. That it will, it will be the younger generation, the, 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 folk, the kids that are teenagers and 20-year-olds that are right now uh, who are getting uh, driver's licenses uh, at, a, at a much slower rate than uh, the previous generation that will sort of be the deciders in terms of how are these vehicles going to be used? Will they be owned or will they be shared? And we'll be looking deeper at the impact these vehicles will have on our cities right after this break. Now, before the break, we were looking at autonomous vehicles and the potential for these vehicles to be turned into a self-driving fleet, which could act as a form of public transport. One day you'll call an Uber and a self-driving vehicle will turn up and take you directly to your destination, quickly and efficiently. And with the implementation of these mass transit ideas for autonomous systems, will come a lot of questions over what becomes of our roads. So I went over to the University of Melbourne to speak to someone who is researching the impact autonomous vehicles will have on the way we design our cities. Well, I can imagine an autonomous vehicle operating on our freeways. 
there's trials across the world where people can run these things on freeways. Where I think we have a huge challenge is on suburban streets, urban streets. Just imagine your local shopping street, you know, Sydney Road, Chapel Street, wherever that might be, and imagine a car which is never going to hit a pedestrian or a cyclist. If you're a pedestrian or a cyclist and the balance of fear is changed, why wouldn't you just walk out into the street? And then, then why wouldn't the next person walk out into the street? So how is this car actually ever going to get along a busy suburban street? This is Dr John Stone. He's a senior lecturer in transport planning and urban planning at the University of Melbourne. And he spent a lot of time researching how autonomous vehicles will impact our cities and how our cities need to adapt to make the most of the technology. One of the things that transport planners have done successfully over the last um, 15, 20 years, particularly in Europe, but in other places in Australia as well, is to mix pedestrians, public transport cars, and that in a way of slowing things down, making things more human. So if you take the CBD of Melbourne as an example, what transport planners have been working on for years is to try and get private mobility private vehicle mobility out of that mix because it just isn't the best use of the space. So we've encouraged people to get public transport to the city to ride, to, to walk when they get around the city. So really I think it could be quite sensible to think that just because it's autonomous doesn't make it any better in, in that sort of mix. So perhaps we would, would, would not want to have um, autonomous vehicles in those dense urban cores. So um, we have to think about you know, where, would they, where would the drop-off points be, where, how would they interact with the public transport system. Now, Dr Stone says there's a number of key things that transport planners are examining when it comes to autonomous vehicles. One is the safety aspect... Two is the way these vehicles interact with existing mass transit systems and also the impact the vehicles could have on urban sprawl. But I was really keen to know what might become of the basics, like the roads and the traffic lights that we already have, because while these vehicles are autonomous and they're designed to run on our existing road infrastructure, potentially they don't need all that. That's one of the things, you know, the, the idea that we don't need traffic lights is you know, one of the things that might... You know, full autonomy might might get get us but it really that's if you're optimizing the movement of the autonomous vehicle not if you're managing its interaction with pedestrians and cyclists and that's i think in the technology terms is going to be the hardest thing because so much of what makes a system work between people in their cars and people on foot it's the eye contact that is made just with a move of your eyebrow a driver can say it's okay if you walk in front of me or and a machine isn't going to be able to to do that unless they're much much more sophisticated than they are at the moment when these car designers are or you know bus designers are, are designing these autonomous vehicles should they be designing systems that behave in the in those same ways or should they be designing systems that are completely different and should the autonomous vehicles behave differently because they they are inherently different should we be trying to replicate you know human intelligence through these and, and human courtesy through these autonomous vehicles when they interact with the city space? Well, it's the human courtesy and the human interaction that makes it possible for us to interact in a, 
in really dense, complex urban environments. So if we're going to introduce this new technology and we're not going to force us to have more space given over to vehicles, really what we want to do in city spaces is create places for interaction. That's what's valuable about a dense urban environment. And if we damage that, we, we risk what makes cities great. And that's why I'm really concerned that we, we have to be saying, unless these technologies enhance our interactions in city space, then they don't really have a place there. Now, when we look at autonomous vehicles and the different approaches to the technology, there's kind of two streams of thought. There's the idea that you, yourself, you as an individual will one day own an autonomous car. But then the other thought is that actually nobody will own a car and we'll just book them like we book an Uber at the moment. So I asked Dr. John Stone about these different approaches and which would be best for our cities. Well, that's the million dollar question, really. Uh, But... I think what is coming down the pipe and where the investment is and is that companies like Google, Uber uh, will have fleets of these vehicles which we will share. I mean, the extent to which people will choose to share a vehicle for, for their daily travel needs is something that you know, culturally is going to be a challenge for us. How that will play out and how it will play out against the sense that people have of my car is my space, I've got my gym gear there, I've got my dog there, I've got you know all this stuff that's there for me for my, my whole day and it's, sometimes it's the only time I get to be on my own. You know, All these cultural reasons why we use a car will be changed by that sort of shared economy. So it's a really, really complex question and, it's, and you know, I don't know the answers yet. What happens in regards to something like, you know, we see peak hour traffic in, in many cities across the globe and... How will autonomous vehicles solve problems like that? And will the autonomous nature of the vehicles and the fact that they're electric and and don't make much noise, will that then enable them to find other routes to their destinations and, you know, make use of other roads that they currently don't? One of the things that's interesting in in all of the uh, modelling, a lot of the sort of benefits come when you have full shared economy and full autonomy of the whole fleet and then when you model that you find you do you know save a lot of um, vehicle kilometers and so on so that transitional phase is going to be very very complex Um, the interesting question that you raise about will we be using our road space differently and will we you know one of the things that we've done um particularly through you know citizens sort of revolts in the 70s and 80s is to have traffic calming, have closes of streets and force the noisy traffic onto um, the arterial roads, which is pretty tough if you happen to live on the arterial road. But at least some people in the city get um, you know, protected from the, the, the noise and the, and the danger. So do we have these cars sort of encouraged to use all sorts of different routes? What, you know, are they really that, you know, they, they will be a bit quieter, but what does it mean for for an urban space, a suburban street with a lot more cars in it, you know, or do we want to use that suburban space street for, for other things, you know, narrower streets, greener spaces, place for 
you know, using that as a as a play space, you know, as, as as people have often advocated for. So, so yeah, that's a really interesting question. That that um, you know, are we opening ourselves up for 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 new sort of traffic calming debates? And my fear is that these things won't reduce vehicle travel travel because we'll find new uses for for vehicles so we can't yet imagine how these things will will um, shape our lives but when we have a new technology we tend to want to use it in all sorts of new and different ways and so you know my my sense is that however we think about these things we're going to have to think about there'll be more potentially more traffic on the roads So, let's assume that we are going to live in a world where our roads look and feel completely different, and fleets of self-driving vehicles run by Uber and Waymo will be passing by every second. But with so many software and car companies exploring self-driving technology, how do we actually keep a consistent standard with how these systems operate? Yeah, I think that that's that's a great question. This is Andrew Hawkins again. Up until recently... Uh, well, I mean, just in terms of, of regular manual, uh, manually driven cars, obviously each car has its own take on cruise control and different safety features, but you know, they're also subject to, uh, to regulation and to, to government regulators coming in and saying this doesn't meet our standards uh, of safety and so that needs to be recalled or that needs to be tweaked and, and changed and, and improved upon. And then that's why I think that it's really sort of incumbent upon uh, on government, on elected officials, on uh, on elected bodies to uh, to come up with the thing with you know with a set of, of rules and regulations that doesn't discourage innovation and doesn't discourage these companies from rolling out uh, some of these features uh, and making sure that they have enough uh, enough runway space to to test them out, but at the same time ensures that anything that is available to the public and is sold uh, in a commercial uh, perspective is safe and meets meets the public's uh, standards for safety. You've got Tesla, they've already put out autopilot. Uh, they seem to sort of found a bit of a blind spot for, for regulators because regulators don't have uh, standards in place for things like over the air software updates, which Tesla really has been sort of at the forefront of. And uh, a lot of the other OEMs have, been, have had to sort of uh, play catch up in that respect. Uh, but at the same time, you have incidents like there was the, the 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 Tesla owner who was killed in Florida while his car was uh, his Tesla was in autopilot. Um, there was a big deal made about that, and that's because um, it was a very sad thing that happened that this man died. But at the same time, it is a really big deal to sort of try to figure out why it was that this accident happened and to ma- ensure that the that standards are in place to to uh, to make sure that it doesn't happen again because people are going to be hyper aware and hyper cognizant of any accidents or fatalities that occur uh, in autonomous vehicles and there will be others. While there are some risks to blindly rolling out autonomous systems, it's very clear that everyone wants to get this right because the advantages of having a perfectly operating autonomous car network would be significant. But until we get to the point of having full autonomy, it's important that we talk about the technology and educate people on the momentous shift that's about to happen. And Dr. John Stone says there's a number of issues that the public needs to discuss to prepare for this future. What are the things that we don't like about our current dependence on our car? What are the things that we lose 
from being so dependent on private motor vehicles and how are we going to make sure that uh, those sort of ambitions, those sort of ideas for our cities are actually fostered by this new technology. So that's something where I think we really um, um, are very slow to, to, to engage with because you know, most people don't yet see the the real problems with with car driving let alone new technologies so um, we don't want to make sure be in the situation where we're going oh wish we'd thought about this a bit more and wish we hadn't built all those freeways and wish we had built public transport so and we, we have to make sure that we're not in the same position in 10 or 15 years with autonomous vehicles That was our episode on designing driverless cities from December 2017. And over the next couple of weeks, we'll be taking you on a deep dive into the design of the actual vehicles. How will these autonomous vehicles actually work? And we'll also update you on some of the big issues that companies like Uber have faced over the last year. It's a really important topic and highlights why we need to be talking about autonomous vehicles now so we don't get hit with surprises when they're implemented in coming years. So please join us next time for that episode on autonomous vehicles on Moonshot.